the Lean Out Podcast, we've talked a lot about the haves and the have-nots. My guest today has another way of thinking about this. He calls it the front row of America and the back row. The front row is in power. It values education, credentials, and consumerism. But the back row values different things. Things like family, faith, and place. These things that we might not look at as having, you can't trade them in the marketplace, are actually deeply important to people. And in a very non-elitist way, in the sense that they're free. You don't need to go to college to find the power of God or Allah. You don't need to study to appreciate your town, where you're from. You're, you're, You're gifted it at birth. So these are things that are free for everybody. Chris Arnotti is a writer and photographer who covers poverty and addiction. He's the author of Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. His new project is Walking the World and documenting it on Substack. And he's recently roamed the streets of Ukraine. He's here today to talk about the strange, surreal moment we're in and how the back row, front row tensions play into it. Chris Arnotti is my guest today on Lean Out. Chris, welcome to Lean Out. Uh, Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm really interested in speaking with you about your project, Walking the World. And I want to get to some of the countries you visited and written about on Substack, especially Ukraine. But first, I want to talk about how you became a wanderer. So 10 years ago, roughly, you're working on Wall Street as a bond trader, living in an exclusive neighborhood in Brooklyn. Kids are in private school. How did you find yourself walking into Hunts Point in the Bronx? Walking has always been my way of kind of exploring the world. I think there's a lot made of my Wall Street career, which is kind of more, more of an anomaly than anything. I had a PhD in physics. I went to Wall Street when I was 28, stayed there for 20 years. That was kind of more the anomaly, but I, I did enjoy the, the, the career. But I still always had kind of the academic curious side. I and mean, so I'd always go for long walks through New York. It was my way of kind of relaxing, decompressing, therapy, whatever you want to call it. And that was generally confined to weekends when, when I was working so hard and when the kids were tiny. But as my career advanced and I kind of got more disillusioned with that career, mm-hmm. I found myself walking kind of more often. And also kind of the, the scope of the walks changed. They became less focused on, you know, I walked the entire New York subway system above line. I'm, I'm a bit of a, you know, a mathematical type. So I like a goal. And so there was this, you know, I had like collect things. And so I try to walk the entire, but then they became more about meeting the people along the walks. I was an amateur photographer then. So I, when I brought my camera, people would start talking to me about, you know, asking me to take their pictures. And so I started taking their pictures. And then what happened was it became a new way of learning. You know, I had spent so much of my life being very, very much a math geek, very, very quantitative. If you ask me to approach a problem, I would simply go, well, I'll just solve it. I'll go to the library and find all the books and read them all. And I look at the data. But my side gig, as it were, was kind of talking to people and getting and learning from them. And I started kind of having at a deeper philosophical level, some sort of question about this whole idea of if you approach the world from a very quantitative, positivistic framework, that's a framework. And we tend not to think of it that way. And I started pivoting more towards an experiential ethnographic approach to life of kind of like, you know, okay, people say Hunts Point's dangerous. Let me go see. 
Let me go see if it's dangerous. So when you look at data, you only look at two things about Hunts Point. It has high crime and it has lots of drugs. You know, Hunts Point for your listeners is a, is considered to be the quote worst neighborhood. It's in South Bronx. So it's, I think it's New York's poorest district by metrics, but it's 15 minutes from Upper East Side, one of the richest. And so I kind of made a point of walking my walks to go into the Bronx. And what I, you know, what I saw there was something very, very different. I looked behind the statistics, as it were. And I saw a lot of, you know, a lot of stories and a lot of resilience and a, and a lot that was missing if you just look at the statistics. And so that kind of became my way of learning, as well as a way of relaxation, which was to, to go on 20-mile walks and not have a real endpoint, just kind of let the people who I was meeting determine where I go. And so it became a, a kind of in many ways, a more experiential way of learning. You know, I still apply a framework to things. So now, you know, I ended up spending three and a half years, four years, quit my job on Wall Street, ended up spending four years of documenting, I guess is, is the word, what I call a street family of, you know, this is the only way to describe them. And it's, you know, as homeless addicts, people who lived in abandoned shelters, cars, under bridges, and were shooting up 10 packs of heroin a day. And I ended up becoming friends with many of them. And only thing I could really do at some level, given my skill set, was kind of document their lives and try to bring it to a wider audience and give what I was learning, you know, this, this sense that there's a lot more out there than just statistics. And these questions we all talk about are a lot more nuanced. And, and, and we, we, the educated class, tend to filter, <laughs> filter these issues they're dealing with through our lens as opposed to from their perspective. And I was trying to give some, at some level, some insight into their perspective and how they see, see the world. Mm. And I do want to talk about that class issue in a moment. But first, can you introduce me and our listeners to a few of the people who really stand out to you from that time? Yeah, um, you know, there's three that come straight to mind, whether there's Shelley, <laughs> who I still in contact with. She's from upstate New York. She like a lot of people in Hunts Point, ended up gravitating to Hunts Point. I think she ended up there at the age of 17 or 18, in and out of jail, been on the streets for probably most of her life. She's transgender. She works as a sex worker. She calls herself a, a prostitute, so I'll use that word. That's what she calls herself. And she hustles, and she's hilarious and funny, and, you know, and she was kind of my guide to a lot of the time I spent in Hunts Point. You know, she's a lifelong addict. It's a rough life. But she doesn't particularly feel sorry for herself. This is the world she knows. And that's one of the things I try to get across is feeling sorry for someone in many ways is very demeaning. You know, you have to see it from their perspective. And so she doesn't really No, she has bad days. <laughs> she has bad weeks. She had bad months in and out of detox, in and out of jail, in and out of Rikers. She's absolutely hilarious. Um, she's funny. She's smart. She is complicated like we all are. And so she was very much spent a lot of time you know, for those three years and through four years helping me give some perspective on what she's going through and what what, the, what she's up against, given that. And then there's, well, Millie is the one that's probably one of the more tragic ones. Millie was, same story, Puerto Rican, born into a very bad situation. I, I always think about, I met Millie, I think at like two in the morning, she was on a street, second, another prostitute. And she was, you know, she was just, she told me her whole life story and at 2.30 in the morning. And I took some photos of her. And then off and on, I became aware of, you know, I always took people's stories at face value. I always printed what they told me without doing, quote, journalism and kind of like, you know, oh, fact checking. And, you know, I remember around Christmas time, about a year and a half after I knew her, two years after I knew her, she had always had a 
her arm was always bandaged and that was always stood out. She always made a point of not letting me photograph her arm because she was embarrassed by it. I remember seeing her in the tub and tundle laundromat one, late one night around Christmas time. She looked bad. She looked very, very bad. And so I drove her back, offered to drive her back to her home. And that was it. She disappeared. So when someone disappears in Hunts Point off the street, the void is filled by rumors and all sorts of rumors started popping up. You know, she was stabbed. She was, there was someone on the loose stabbing her, blah, blah, blah. She got, she's in rehab. She's in Rikers. And so I, I went through, started, you know, after two months, I started getting worried and I went and searched for her to the degree I could, did the journalism. And I found that she was, she had died. She was in the Bronx. Uh, she was in Lincoln Hospital. I think she was tagged. She had died with no papers. So she was tagged as, she was, tagged, I think, BX65, fifth, 65th death of the, of, of the year in Bronx. And ended up, what happens when you die in, if you die in New York City on, on, with no papers and no claim on your body, after three months, they bury you in a place called Heart Island, which is a story unto itself. You should, your readers should Google Heart Island. It's got over a million bodies and buried in trenches. It's been there since 1870. It's a small island off the Bronx. It's the pauper's grave. And you're not allowed to visit it. Traditionally, we're not allowed to visit it due to the work of one woman who made this her lifelong project. You can now visit it once a month. But we ended up getting her exhumed. I did the journalism and found her family, what, uh, what exists of her family. And we ended up getting her exhumed and properly buried. Which, you know, that for me was a real moment in my life, because if you had talked to old me, scientific me, I would say, what, what matters where you're buried? You know, who, your dad, your dad, who cares? But that's very much the positivistic framework. But I remember one of her friends saying, you know, you don't really die. You only really die when people start forgetting about you. And, you know, with, if you're buried on a mass grave and a hard island that nobody can visit, it's easy to forget about you. So that was a real moment of me of like, ah, yes, you know, there's these sort of spiritual things that I used to kind of mock. I never mocked them as much as just kind of dismiss them. This whole idea of you know, the importance of, of these sort of kind of memories and spiritual things really resonated with me at that time. You to see that she actually had a gravestone that people could point to and a dignified death, as it were. And so, you know, I, I think about her a lot. And, you know, she ended up having died of that wound on her, what she was doing, she would shoot and shoot heroin in, into her wound and that ended up getting infected. And I guess the third, I would say is probably Takesha, who is, she's not on the cover of my book, but she's on the inside flap, the picture of her eating at McDonald's. Again, a really rough story. Her version of the story is, that, you know, her mom was a, a prostitute who put her out the, on the streets at 14. Again, it's, it's one of the things I, I do regret in some senses from my book is I didn't share the amount of humor that exists. I mean, she's hilarious. You know, again, she's I'm not so sure how well she would do on the SAT, but she's she's verbally as bright as you can come. She sees through people in a second. There's these different forms of intelligence that I think we're, we're too dismissive of. All we think about is the ability to take tests and high CPU. And if you, I can tell, I can guarantee you, if you can put, you know, I worked on Wall Street. And I was like, I always used to think of that movie Trading Places where you switch places. The amount, of, the amount of street smarts you have to have, the ability to be dropped in a maze anywhere and get out. I mean, she had that in spades. She could solve any puzzle if she needed to, because she have to, you know, survival. Mm -hmm. And so... Again, it's just she's she's still out there 10 years later. Unfortunately, I think she, that's she'll always be. But that's that's who she is. And again, she doesn't want people to feel sorry for her. This is who she is. This is her life.
And you're touching on a different sort of value system. And this is something that you write about in the book in terms of the front row of America and the back row of America. And so the front row valuing consumerism and credentialism, but the back row valuing other things like faith, like place. Talk to me a little bit about that conception. That's been kind of the hardest thing to get across to people is, is this idea that we in the front row, I talk about myself, I got a PhD in physics. I was a banker. You know, I listen to classical music. I read Herodotus, you know, and so I'm not here to dismiss education. It's just, you know, it's wonderful. And that's the life I live, but we have a worldview and it's one that we don't question as a worldview because we think it's right. And so it leads to what I call intellectual colonialism. We, we believe that everybody should share our worldview. And that worldview is pretty simple. It's very, it's very materialistic. Yeah, I, I don't just mean in how much stuff you have, but in how you view the world. What is valuable is what you can measure. And so things that are unmeasurable, what I'd call transcendent qualities or non-credential forms of meaning is another way of thinking about things you can't put on a resume necessarily are just kind of dismissed as kind of like, you know, secondary or tertiary things like faith. You know, what's the value of faith? Family. What's the value mm. of family? Place. And that's the one I think that was able, I feel like I've had a hard time getting across the concept of how that these things that we might not look at as having, you know, can't trade them in the marketplace are actually deeply important to people. Mm-hmm. And in a very non-elitist way, in the sense that they're free, you don't need to go to college to find the power of God or Allah. You don't need to study to appreciate your town, where you're from. You're, you're, you're gifted it at birth. So these are things that are free for everybody. And so when you demean them, it's a very elitist framework. We're saying that we at the top, the only things that are really valuable are the things that we can acquire through education. It's the tech, you know, educational system is a technology that we use to define what is valuable. And place is the only one I feel like I've really gotten across. I think I've managed to get some people to recognize that, yeah, you know, place is really important. You know, the idea that people should all, you know, I think the, the kind of the meme of just move idiot, you know, it's so condescending, you know, because Mm It's, it's, it's kind of wrapped in a scornful way as seen as provincialism, you know, that you should want to stay your entire life in the same city. But that's very important to people. That defines who they are. You know, mm-hmm. that, that gives them that literally, you know, use a, that gives them a place in the world. It's, it's a way of understanding. It's a way of being valued. And so the idea that you might want to spend your entire life surrounded by the hills that make you happy or the people that make you happy is kind of foreign to us because we move all the time. Yeah. You know, we will, we'll, I do, I'm guilty. You know I mean? You know, mm-hmm. I will jump at, at a dime to, to, to change my, where I live. And I think it took me a while to get that one because I had such the old framework. Cause I was, after I did the Bronx thing, I went around the country for I spent like 400,000 miles in my car, just walking and talking to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I remember like one of the things that I'd ask people is, are you from here? You know, I remember being in this town literally called, I think, Rootville, <laughs> you know, in the McDonald's where I talk to people a lot, you know, after talking for like two hours, I'll go, oh, are you from here? It's like, no, I'm not from here. It's like, what do you mean? Oh, I'm from like, you know, five miles down the road <laughs> or, or I'm from, you know, <laughs> across the county, you know? <laughs> so 
when it's that granular to them, it's, it, you know, the places are something very different. Or there's a young African-American woman, I remember this, in Cairo, Illinois, which is a, a really evocative town. It's a ghost, almost literally a ghost town. I remember talking to her again for like 15, 20 minutes and asking her if she's from here. And she was like, no, I'm from, you know, <laughs> she points up the road to like a town that's, you know, five miles away. But, you know, for her, that's different. And then, you know, family is another one that's just, again, the importance of family, which all these things, place, family, faith, are, when you think about it, at a kind of more, you know, sim country world, sim city world, they're regulatory bodies. They're organic regulatory bodies that provide people not only a place, a place to be integrated, but also rules to live by. And I think, you know, we in the front row kind of look at those as outdated. We want to replace them by bureaucratic state-sponsored institutions that regulate stuff. So I think a lot of what's going on, you know, the chaos that's going on in so many of these communities is that you're tearing apart regulatory bodies and replacing them with a uniform regulatory body that's just can't handle these things, can't handle the the daily regulation. So much of, of life is all these interactions at a daily basis that there's no rules written about them, but you know, that's your, that's your custom. You know how to deal with each other. And when we kind of erode those and try to replace them with basically a, a, a rule book written from DC or Ottawa, it can't be done. And it's mm. going to cause a lot of chaos. And I think that's what we're seeing now is you've eroded these regulatory bodies. And, you know, that, that's just at a practical level, at a more meaningful level, you've eroded these places that give people a sense of who they are. And I mean, why are you here in this world? I mean, that question has to be answered by somebody and everybody asks it, you know, and those things that we, family, place, faith, those used to give people a sense of meaning. Those, the, when those are gone, I mean, you know, you're left with this very hierarchical material society that says your place is how much stuff you have and how big your resume is. And the only people happy with that are the people at the very, very top. Yeah. Yeah. I thought about this a lot. This really resonated for me. I'm from Vancouver and I feel a very deep connection to that place, but have had to leave twice because of housing there. You know, I'm a journalist, but journalism is precarious. And I really thought about that reading this book and, and what that sense of place gives to people. I'm curious at the end of your book, you go back to the small town in Florida that you came from and left. What was that experience like for you? I mean, it, you know, I try to give a more nuanced sense of like, you know, both, you know, I, that old system doesn't work for everybody. That's mm -hmm. why it's being replaced partially, you know, by people. It didn't work for me, mm -hmm. you know. And so I'm not kind of painting this picture that the past was glorious and wonderful and had problems. You know, those local customs are can be racist. <laughs> those local customs can be exclusive. Those local customs don't necessarily like a lot of a lot of um, volatility within it, you know. And so I I was not happy where I was, and I I was the fact that I was able to move was good for me. You know, when I when I talk to younger kids, I never tell them not to leave. I never tell them not to pursue. It'd be very hypocritical for them to say to tell people like you just stay in your hometown and you know suck it up. Mm. I think you know there is a sorting going on, and you can't 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 stop that. But for me, it was my town hadn't changed. I remember I had used to go back to visit my parents, but then my parents moved away before dying, and so I hadn't been back for a while. And I remember walking in the. Uh, my dad worked in civil rights and, you know, back in, and so my old town is literally divided by railroad tracks. And on one side, there's a black section and on the other side, there's a white section. And that's the problem. <laughs> and that's, you know, kind of why, but because of that, we had a lot of, 
growing up, I had friends on both sides, given the social circles of my dad. And I remember walking into the black section of town and just walking around with my camera. And some guy yelled at me, just basically asked me what I'm doing around here, which is a decent question to ask, you know. <laughs> and I just, I pulled up the first name I had in my, my mind. I'm like, oh, I'm looking for Stefan Cheaton. That's I think as, you know, guy I worked with when I was 16. Mm. Here I am, you know, 50. And I hadn't heard anything since I'm, since I worked on 16. And he goes, huh, yeah, his kin is down two blocks, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, okay. So I walked down two blocks and a woman came out, you know, at the house she told me to go to. And I asked for Stefan and, and she's like, oh yeah, hold on. And she, uh, she calls him and five seconds later, I'm on the phone with him and I had nothing to say. You know, I'm like, oh shit, what would I get into? Um, you know, <laughs> and it was kind of like, it, in many ways, it was, re- it was a reminder of I'm an outsider and I'll always be an outsider. You know, I mean, I, here I am, you know, us journalists are, what we do is kind of weird. You know, we're the weirdos, we're the minority, we're the people who have like, you know, watchers and storytellers. And, you know, that's not what most people are. <laughs> and so it was kind of like, I, I felt like I was finally being called out for like, <laughs> like, I'm like, Hey, Stefan, how's it going? He's like, who are you again? <laughs> 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 and I'm like, I try to, I try to dance around the issue of like, you know, Hey, we worked at, you remember we worked together. We both, we both got our ankles crushed by that truck when we were stoned. He's like, huh? I said, I'm the white guy you worked with. I'm Peabody. He goes, ah. <laughs> 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 but you know, it was just, again, it was two different worldviews clashing. And I was trying to end on a note to say that, look, you know, I'm not over romanticizing the back row. I, I don't want to be that person. I just want, uh, there are two worldviews. What, what I'm trying to get across is there are two worldviews and they have very different perspectives. They're very different at a very deep, deep level. They're very different. And they both have their faults. The point I want to get across is we're the ones in control. We make the rules for everybody. So that's, a, you know, we're, we're the occupiers as it were. And so that's, you would think that if you're an o- occupier, and again, I want to emphasize, we're the minority, we're the weirdos. People talk about the normies as a weirdo, we're the weirdos, <laughs> you know? And if you're an occupying force, intellectually, intellectual colonialism, forget about the morals, forget about the moral side. I think at a surely pragmatic level, you'd want to know how the people you're occupying think, the people you're making rules for think. What do they value? Especially if you're going to masquerade as saying we have democracy, where the people with the larger views win. So at a very pragmatic level, one thing I would hope I hope to get across to people is, look, these things matter. Forget about the more morality, deeper philosophical questions of is this right or wrong. At a very pragmatic level, if you keep imposing this kind of framework, this highly materialistic, highly competitive very secular framework on people, they're going to revolt. I mean, they're going to like, no, this is this doesn't work for me. If you don't want that to happen, maybe you should listen a little bit more, you know, and figure out when you make your rules from far away, how does that, how, what do the people think about it? Do they want it? To use a very geeky framework, I would say, we in the front row, who the policy class, the people who make the rules, we have a different utility function. We value things differently than the people who are going to have to use the rules. And so when I hear people say, and it's, it, you can hear it now in certain discussions about, they only did X because the media distorted their mind. Like, the, like right now, the debate in the U.S. is like, how can they care about inflation? Man? Where, where there's job yeah. growth, you know, it's like, well, wait a second here. <laughs> you know, If you're telling me that someone got to their view because they're just deluded, 
why, or the classic one is why do they vote against their own interests? Yeah, well, yeah. Whoa, wait, hold, hold on. <laughs> you think you know their interest? <laughs> you an outsider? Maybe, maybe they're voting in their interest and you don't understand their interest. Mm. So, you know, it, it's kind of this kind of framework you have to, we have a very, again, a colonial framework. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you a bit about the sort of scrambling of the left and right that we're seeing right now, or what I perceive to be a kind of scrambling. So you, you identify as a socialist. And I noticed in your, your book, in the reception to your book, was embraced by some Republicans and, and blurbed by some very prominent Republicans, Tom Cotton, J.D. Vance. And in many ways, I'm also of the left. I feel like the left has really abandoned the poor. And I wonder how you think through some of those things. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at kind of the extremes of communism and, 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 and capitalism, both are two sides of the same coin, which in my mind are very capital, are very materialistic. They both don't look at, they don't value transcendent values. They all look at things in very economic framework. How should we divide the pie? As opposed to what they've done in that, that process is they've completely dismissed the value of an entirely other pie, which is the transcendent values I talked about, faith, place. So the framework right now is arguing over how we should distribute stuff, where I think the kind of thing that's missing in, in the entire thing is, is people don't just want stuff. There's, there's other issues out there, and those are the cultural issues. And I think everybody in the policy class gets really angry when we're arguing over cultural issues, what they see as symbolic issues. That's everything to everybody, though. They're, they're missing the whole game. That's what matters to people, you know, because it's about lifestyle. It's about, <laughs> do you value me and my lifestyle? Do you get me? Do you understand my lived reality? Where I think the the kind of, I was kind of surprised with the reaction to my book from both camps. I had thought it was a very kind of book from the left, but I think the chapter about God and faith is really, really kind of, that's what got people's eyes. And that's what, you know, focused on, I think in many ways, that's what appealed to the right. The fact that I wrote, I think someone on the right told me, you know, you wrote a book that had faith in it where you didn't make fun of it. Like, my God, thank you. <laughs> Where I don't only not make fun of it, I actually celebrate it. And so I think I think faith is very central to where we're going these days in terms of left and right. I think the scrambling that's going on is also about lived reality. I mean, it's kind of like the Democratic Party of, you know, my, my, the, the East, East Paso County Democratic Club used to meet in my fam- my father's house you know, <laughs> once a month. And, you know, as a small kid, I was raised around East Democrat, East Pasco County Democratic Club meetings. And it was a weird, it was a group of weirdos. If you were a Democrat in the 70s in, in rural Florida, you, uh, they were the, the legacy old Democrats because, you know, the party apparatus, but you, you were a weirdo. There was, you know, there was alcoholics, gays, you know, you know gays are no longer weird, but that's, you know, it was people who had complicated lives, a mixture of academics, gay uh, working class, African-Americans, Mexicans. It was just a weird group of people. If you go into a Democratic Party club meeting now, it's generally the professional class. You know, it, it was a very, it was also a very forgiving group of people because their lives were complicated. You know, there wasn't their purity test. And I think in many cases, we've pivoted, the Democratic Party has pivoted to being taken over by that kind of elite educated class and kind of kicked out 
people who, you know, I always say like debates in the Democratic Party amongst the activist class look like a grad student seminar on what the people want. <laughs> like, you know, like you're, you're sitting in the conference room talking about what the people want and you're not the people. You know, like you're, you're reading about it and through books and you, you're imposing what you hope they want on them. It's not what they want. And so I, I think it's become, it's kind of been taken over. The center of the Democratic Party has been taken over by big business, Amazon, Facebook, you know, these big companies, these mon monopolistic companies and um, academics. You know, the GOP is, you know, big, was big, was big business. Is, that's all was all my life and still to a large degree is. One of the things I try to get across in my book and in my writings is that most people hate both parties. You know, most, most people don't pay attention with politics. Most people don't vote. Mm, you know, mm -hmm. the, the biggest political block in the U.S. is not voting. And there's a reason for that. It's just nothing changes. One thing's the same as the other. So, you know, every four years, people ask for their vote. Quip, I used to say, was like, your lifestyle is icky, your job is obsolete, now vote for me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> at least the Republicans add on, I'm like you, or I try, like, they don't hammer so much on that, your lifestyle is icky part. Mm -hmm. And so they make a few bones on the cultural issues. They make a few bones on trying to trying to act like working class. So in that sense, they at least have some sense of what the mistake is. It may be a cynical solution, but at least they have some sense of where the mistake is. And I think, you know, I wrote about my piece of walking in Washington, D.C. about this. Mm -hmm. I walked, nowadays I just walk cities. And so I was in D.C. for, I dropped my daughter off at a conference in D.C., a gaming convention in D.C. And so I had three days. And so one day I walked from um, Northern Virginia to the White House via Anacostia, which is the working class black neighborhood. And then the next day I walked to the White House through Alexandria, which is upper income educated whites. That's the democratic coalition. I try to explain how those two things is a coalition that I don't know if it can last much longer because there's a good historical reason for the coalition. The Republicans haven't done anything appeal to blacks. So I understand why the coalition is holding together right now because the you know, least of the two enemies. But, it, but it's, a, it's a coalition that because, again, it's the front row, back row coalition that I don't, I don't think can hold much longer because the Democratic Party is being taken over by the highly educated people. And, you know, one of, one of the things that this happens all the time. So I'm on Twitter telling people I'm doing this. And, you know, I did both of these walks. And when I, I did the, I did the Anacostia walk first. And, you know, again, things people tell me with good intentions are very revealing. It's like, you know, you know, watch out, you're going to get mugged. <laughs> Be careful. Like, you know, how can you think about that? This, these are your these are your coalition partners. These are the people, you know, these are the people who who, who keep you in power <laughs> and people you claim to care about. And you're telling me to be scared of them. Anacostia is fine. It's a working class, poor black neighborhood. It's fine, though. That kind of sense of I really I really like these people. They're important to us, but they're scary. It's just it's really, really awful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just, it's, I mean, you know, it, it, but it reveals a lot, you know, they don't really care about them beyond as a vote or as a symbolic way to feel like they're, it's a get out of privilege free card. What do you mean? I, I support these issues. I can't be privileged. Mm. Before we close, I, I want to just talk briefly about walking the world. And I, I want to ask you what you saw in Kiev when you were there. Yeah. So now I, now I just go around the world walking cities. I, I didn't go to Kiev for any reason other than it was curious and it was cheap. And I kind of dismissed the, the troops clustered on the border. And I, I left, I guess, three weeks before the war. You know, it was a really interesting 
town because nobody thought the war was going to happen. Absolutely nobody. Wow. And I, I wrote that to some mockery now, but I was trying to reflect the, what I saw, which was, you know, it was, it was a wonderful town. I spent most of my time in, in the north northeast corner, which is a working class. I think it was in drop-off period, Soviet blockhouses. But, you know, it was a really wonderful town that at the time when I wrote about it, feels a little bit, it feels dated like the day after the invasion. But what I was seeing was a pool between the West and the East, but not in the way that is being played out now with, with soldiers, but in this kind of, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the countries I go to, like, yeah, like Ukraine, like Lima, like Turkey, still has what I talk about, that transcendent values. It still values family, still values place, still values community. And that's partially why I go, because it hasn't been fully taken over by Western liberalism. But you were seeing that, you know, one of the things that was really kind of interesting to look at Kiev at the time was it was being pulled in these two directions, which is now playing out in a very ugly way between kind of, we always think of Western democracy and liberalism as being this great thing that everybody wants. You know, everybody wants more stuff. Everybody wants, you know, but what happens when we, when kind of secular democratic materialism comes in is it it destroys a, a way of living and not everybody necessarily wants that or not necessarily everybody understands what's coming and i think you see that played out in so many of these countries and i certainly saw that in kiev there was the old kiev which was basically 90 percent of it which were these outer fringes that most tourists don't go to where i spent all my time that still were built around family still you know built around local ownership of small businesses didn't have a lot of franchises and, and still had it still celebrated an aesthetic that i really appreciated you know there's art as beauty and it wasn't just all advertisement. And then you go into, you know, then there was the tourist part of Kiev, which was basically Upper East Side, Saxis Avenue of a bunch of expats and Kiev intellectuals. So that's what I wrote about at the time. Now, now that's all moot <laughs> now, since the Russians invaded. It's interesting. It's a time of such flux and such change. Just lastly, Chris, what do you think it would take for us as a society, North America, but also around the world to start reprioritizing these makers of meaning that are free? What would it take for us to reprioritize family and faith again and community and place? Yeah, see, this is why I end up short because, um, you know, I got criticized in my book for not offering solutions. I don't have an answer to that. And then this is the problem. It's not about, it's not just about policy. Um, You know, it's, it's much larger than that. You know, we can stop policy that's directly corrosive of these things. And almost all policy is because we don't value them. So we don't think about them. Unfortunately, you have to convince the political class because, you know, they're not going to give up power, not without a fight, unfortunately. And I I don't want to fight. So the less messy answer is to convince the political class, the policy class to, to revalue. Like when you look at policy, don't just do it in a spreadsheet actually go out and be part of the community you're making policy for, talk to people, rethink how you, what you prioritize. Do you prioritize economic growth above all else? Mm, you know, that's, there's a lot of, a lot of destruction that comes if you, that's all you do, because you tend to forget about these things that get in the way of growth, <laughs> these messy things like family in place. Um, <laughs> so, you know, the policy class has to stop being actively aggressive against these and short of that, I'm pretty cynical. You know, I mean, I, I wish I could say a happy answer. That's all going to be good, but I really do think that's not going to happen. And I think you're going to you're going to see a lot more chaos going forward. 
because you can't have an elite who manage the world basically against the interests of the, the people. <laughs> it doesn't end well. And when it does end badly, it's really ugly. You know, I mean, it's really, really ugly. You know, it's like, again, I, I don't want to romanticize the back row. You know, mm-hmm. if they had their way, it would be, it'd be ugly. And so I think there needs to be some understanding between the two groups. Like, hey, we got we to gotta figure out where each other is on these things so we don't come to blows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's a crazy time for sure. And I, I do appreciate you coming on, talking about it and spending so much time going out and documenting it and going places a lot of people don't go. Well, thank you for having me. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. 